this uh, Resurrection Sunday morning, the uh, time we traditionally celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's so great to even hear on uh, the news media and some of the news stations even talking about it uh, without uh, poo-pooing it or disparaging it or anything like that. It's nice to hear that occasionally, and so we can uh, rejoice and, and be glad in that. Um, we uh, are studying this morning, we are continuing our study from second session last week about the resurrection of the Messiah, and we're going to go ahead and do it first and second sessions because we've got several more weeks ahead of us on this. So uh, anyway, we're going to take a look at some of the prophecies. This is not all the prophecies, and if you look through it, you're probably wondering what happened to Micah 5.2 about he shall be born in Bethlehem. And the fact that he was born in Bethlehem and all that. This was geared just to the fact of showing that Messiah was the fulfillment of a multitude of prophecies. And he's under attack. The whole Bible is under attack now. The claim is it's just a bunch of mythology and just a bunch of myths. And yet, the Bible is grounded in history. And where it touches history, it is accurate. And we can uh, indeed make that a uh, position of faith for us. So, before we begin, let's take a moment for prayer to uh, present ourselves in front of the Lord, to thank Him for the fact that He died for our sins, He was buried and rose again on the third day, and to get ourselves ready to just re be reminded once again of what all happened that uh, amazing week and leading up to that week uh, that uh, we know as the cross. So, let's take this time for prayer. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we're so amazingly blessed <clears throat> that you have just brought us all together. We thank you so much for the fact that we can assemble freely together in a free country still. And Father, that's a blessing most Christians around the world in the history of the world have not had that, that luxury of. So we often take it for granted, but Father, we thank you for it. Father, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for its integrity and its inspiration and the fact that you have preserved it down through the centuries so that we can open it up and look at it and be able to read it with a high degree of confidence that what we read is indeed true. So, Father, I pray that this morning as we go through this, we'll be reminded of the fact that uh, this man named Jesus, the one we know as the Messiah, this man fulfilled prophecies that were laid out thousands of years before he was born. So, Father, I pray you'd nourish our souls with this portion of your word. It's in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Well, looking at prophecy, it's kind of interesting because if you start looking at part of the why are we here, which in parts to resolve the conflict between God and Satan, and that's a much too deep study for this morning. But when you start looking at it, you find out that um, <laughs> when you start looking at it, you find out that prophecy is one of the few things that has not already been proven and established in history. When Jesus went to the cross, he proved that he was righteous, he was just, he was eternal life. He proved every aspect of his divine essence except his omniscience is not yet completely proven because there are many unfulfilled prophecies. 
But as it relates to the first century and the first advent and Jesus coming into the world, there were prophecies that go all the way back to the promised seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15 and then are picked up and expanded in Isaiah 7.14. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth the child. You shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah 9.6 continues that on. A child shall be born to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. He shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. We also find in Isaiah 11.1 1, that he is of the line of Jesse going through David. So we, we have all of these prophecies that we have seen and prophecies of where would he be born. Multitude of prophecies. It's not... It's not possible to fulfill all these prophecies in one person uh, by chance. It's just not something that can be done. Mathematicians would look at it and say it's beyond the scope of probability. Now, we've been looking at some of the prophecies as related to the first advent. And now we are at the part of his trials. We are looking at really his credentials. Why should somebody say that Jesus is the Messiah? Why would they have been able to say that? Why should they have said that in the first century? Why did they reject him in the first century? These are questions that we all ask from time to time. In the Bible, if we pay attention to it, and if we don't just jump into the Gospels and try to read it right there, but read the Old Testament before we get there carefully, we will find that there's a lot of prophecy given in the Old Testament that was fulfilled by a man named Jesus. Therefore, he is the Messiah. He is the Messiah that was prophesied and the Messiah that the Jews were looking for for millennia actually before his arrival. <clears throat> now when it comes to, and we've seen his ministry, prophecies about his ministry. He's a miracle worker. He's a healer. That's who Messiah would be. We have seen that he would be betrayed, be betrayed by his friend who lifted up his heel against him, betrayed by his disciples, betrayed by his countrymen, he would indeed be betrayed. Now we're kind of looking at his, his trials. He went through six trials uh, the night, of, night before the cross. He was uh, arrested there in the Garden of Gethsemane, dragged off to a bunch of kangaroo courts, that really uh, some had jurisdiction, some didn't have jurisdiction, and all they were looking was for two witnesses to agree on something, and they had trouble finding those, trying to find an accusation that they could actually level against him. Now, <clears throat> his trials, he would not defend himself. That's the first thing that we see there. One thing prophesied about his trial, he wouldn't defend himself. Isaiah 53, 7 says he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And then Matthew 27, 12, the fulfillment says, while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. So here's a prophecy in Isaiah 53, which, by the way, the Jews don't even want to read today in the synagogues as they read through the, through the Bible, and they do it every three years depending on the, the synagogue, but they read all the way through it, and they skip Isaiah 53 because it's one of those passages that they cannot account for because it is so dead on accurate about this man named Jesus. Now it also says in Isaiah 53:5 that he would be scourged. He would be scourged. <clears throat> it says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. 
the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. His stripes, looks at his scourging that is there, and by his stripes we are healed. And Matthew 27 says, then he released Barabbas to them. Boy, this brings back some memories, doesn't it? You want us to release, uh, it's our custom, Pilate, to release someone to you. <coughs> Been condemned to death every time we have one of, one of these special days like this. <coughs> Who do you want? Jesus or Barabbas? In a sense, Pilate was even advocating for Jesus. He didn't want to do this. <coughs> Especially since his wife said, you leave that guy alone. <laughs> it's not a good thing. You know, sometimes, men, you need to listen to your wife. Pilate should have listened to, to his wife, but he didn't listen to her. And so they said, keep in mind, this is his countrymen. Give us Barabbas instead of Jesus. What had Jesus ever done to any of them except heal a whole bunch of them? That's what he had done. He had provided for them. He had taught them. He would encouraged them. He'd been with them through thick and thin, through all of this stuff. And what did they say? Crucify him. That's what they yell for. Isaiah 50, verse 6, he says, I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Now, this is Isaiah talking, but look at Matthew 26, 67, which says, Then they, they spat in his face. And they beat him, and others struck him with the palms of their hands. Do you see what they're doing here? They're doing to the Messiah what they did to the prophets. And they should have, had they been familiar and remembering what was written in their scriptures, they should have said, you know, our forefathers did the same thing to Isaiah. Maybe there's a problem here with what we are doing to this man. We're also told that he'd be mocked. And on Psalm 22. Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 are two of the key messianic passages of the Old Testament. In 22.7, all who see me ridicule me, it says. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. In Matthew 27. They twisted a crown of thorns. They put it on his head, put a reed in his right hand. They bowed the knee before him and they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. He would be mocked. This was prophesied, this was carried out. So you see that this, these, these are just, this is not all of the prophecies. These are representative of some of the things that happened. We also find prophecies about his cross. His cross, he would be a reproach to men. When put on the cross, anybody put on the cross was a reproach. And what we find out, Isaiah 53 is written in the 800s B.C., roughly. So you're 800 years before Christ. Some of the Psalms, Psalm 22, is written 1,000 years before Christ. You're seeing prophecies that are made 500 to 1,000 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And these are, all, these are prophecies that are being made before there were certain forms of crucifixion were even known on the planet. C or certain forms of punishment, crucifixion being one of them. 
The Romans are the ones that put that into operation. Rome was not in existence till the 700s B.C. And they didn't put the cross into uh, operation until later on in their history. So <clears throat> these are things that are being prophesied. Cursed is he who dies on a tree. These are things being prophesied hundreds of years before the actual event. He would be a reproach. In uh, John 19:17, and bearing his cross, he went out to a place, the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. And they led him away. They laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country. And on him they laid the cross, that he might bear it after Jesus. He would be a reproach. A reproach to everybody that looked upon him by being placed on a cross, and that was carried out. We also see that his hands and feet would be pierced from Psalm 22:16, which says, They pierced my hands and my feet. Again, the Messianic Psalm. Luke 23:33, And when they came to the place called Calvary, they crucified him there. And how did they crucify? Piercing hands and feet. Now, <clears throat> that was prophesied in Psalm 22. <clears throat> it was prophesied he'd be considered a transgressor. Why did they put people on crosses? Not because they're innocent, hopefully, but they did execute an innocent man. In those six trials, they could not find any legitimate cause to bring about the death penalty. And the Jews wanted him there because... They no longer had the authority of the death penalty. That was also a prophecy. We can go back to Genesis 49.10. That says the scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. The scepter was the right of rulership. Okay? Who had the right of rulership? The Jews. Okay? Through the line of Judah. But it had departed. Rabbi Akaba in 28 A.D., a couple of years before Jesus went public with his ministry, wrote, Woe to us! The scepter has departed from Judah, and Messiah has not yet come. Hmm. They recognized the prophecy was... There's only two prophecies given concerning the timing of the arrival of the Messiah, and that was one of them. And they were looking for him because they knew that Messiah had not come, and the scepter had departed from Judah. They recognize that. The others in Daniel 9 with Daniel's 70th week and at the end of the 69th week Messiah would come and he'd be cut off from amongst his brethren. Now there were that's a key prophecy as to the timing of the first advent. But he would be labeled a transgressor. From Isaiah 53 they poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors. Matthew 27 even then the two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and the other on the left. Those were transgressors, right? But he wasn't. It's amazing the types of things that happen. We'll see him over the course of this study. But when he starts talking on the cross, eight different sayings he uttered on the cross while he was there. And when he starts, when he starts talking, <laughs> he one of those st statements is. Today you shall be with me in paradise. That's the that's the thief on the right. That's the one that said, told the other one, shut up, 
Why? This man's innocent. We are not. We are here because of what we did. This man, though, in the middle cross, he didn't do anything. And then he asked Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What does that mean? <laughs> well, he'd evidently heard what Jesus, the message Jesus had been talk, talking about. And I don't know how many of the words that he heard along the way, like his kingdom is not this world, but he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That meant that this man dying on a cross with no way to escape had to rise again. Didn't it? Some people say, well, he didn't believe that he died and was buried and rose again. He said, this guy's innocent here. To a Jew, that should have made a difference because of the innocent victims offered on the sacrificial altars for 1,500 years under the Mosaic Law. It should have made a difference to them. This guy's intimate. Remember me. And then what did Jesus say? Today, that's important if you're on the cross. Because they could extend the pain and agony for a day or two on the cross. And he said, today, so if you're on the cross, that's a sign of relief. You, he makes it personal, shall be is a promise that he gives to this man. With me is relationship in paradise. That's where the Old Testament saints went awaiting the resurrection of and the ascension of Christ. Yeah. That was quite a statement, wasn't it? Loaded in just a few little words you find in the English. But it encompassed so much theology. Right there, it was amazing. He would be numbered with the transgressors. <clears throat> now, this crucifixion, as I mentioned, pictured Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, didn't come into practice under the Jewish system until uh, hundreds of years after the account was prophesied. And the Romans are the ones that brought it in. Now, <clears throat> he would forgive those that crucified him. We know what he said on the cross, right? With his eight statements, when we stop, start up and think about it, we can probably all go through them. And one of the things that he said was, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they were doing. Oftentimes we don't realize that that was a, a prophecy that he would forgive those who put him up there. Isaiah 53, 12. He bore the sin of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. And it wasn't just the two guys on the cross that were transgressors. It was the ones in front of the cross that were transgressors. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now, <clears throat> he was not esteemed. Man of sorrows. What a name for the Son of God who came. Isaiah 53, 3. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He's true humanity. He had gone through somewhere along the line of death of his father, so he tasted what it was like to lose a parent. We don't know when. We know that he was there when Jesus was 12 in the temple and he wasn't there when he started his ministry. And that's about all we know. Joseph never showed back up on the scene. 
So Jesus went through the loss of his father. He knows that pain. He also went through the loss of a friend named Lazarus. Even though he knew he was going to resurrect him. He wept, I don't think, over Lazarus because he went there to resurrect him. He knew what he was going to do and he let him rot for three days. You find that interesting? He let him, left him in there. Lord, by this time he stinketh. You remember Mary and Martha? Roll away the stone. Have you ever thought maybe Jesus asked us to do something unpleasant to lead to something that is of great joy? Because that's just what he did there, isn't it? And he rolled away the stone. And Lazarus walked out. I think maybe part of his pain was knowing Lazarus is going to have to die again. And go through it again. Hmm. Fascinating, isn't it? He was acquainted with grief. We read in Hebrews 4, another passage, about we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses. But he was like us in all things except without sin. He knows what we're going through. He knows your trials, your tribulations. He knows every part of them. Because just by his journey to the cross, he knew where he was going. Early on, he knew he was he knew he was headed for the cross. He knew what it was and and still he that's what he decided to do. John 7 even his brothers did not believe in him. Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? This is the the people talking amongst themselves, themselves, and it's also conversations as well. But it, even his brothers. Now see, Jesus was born of a virgin, but Mary and Joseph still had children after Jesus was born. So Jesus had, in a sense, half brothers. His heavenly father was God. His earthly mother, of course, was Mary. But he was fully God and fully man. But they went ahead and had kids. And guess what? They showed up at one of his uh, uh, congregational meetings, I guess you would say. And they were trying to get him to come home. His brothers. And even Mary thought he was a nut. And yet... He said, no, my brothers and sisters are the ones who believe who I am. And he made a distinction there. He said, I'm not going to be taken off base by family. You know anybody else maybe that happened to? Maybe a guy named Abraham. Go forth from the land of your relatives to a land that I will show you. Why? His relatives, Terah, was an idolater, his daddy. He said, get out of that land of idolatry in that Tigris-Euphrates River Valley. Get out of there, and I'll show you where to go. But I want you to leave first. Now, that's not a real inviting invitation, is it? Just pack up and hit the road, and I'll show you where. Well, that's what Abraham did, a man of great faith. And it was for his good, right? And get him out of that, that place. He was not esteemed. He would be hated without a legitimate cause, actually. No legitimate cause. Psalm 69. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. John 15, 25. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled 
which is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. There were no valid charges that could be brought against him of a violation of the law. He asked them, which one of you accuses me of sin? What they accused him of was a violation of the traditions of the elders, not the law of God given through Moses. He said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. Every jot and tittle of it, as a matter of fact. And that's what he did. He would be abandoned by his family. He'd be abandoned by his family. From Psalm 38:11, he says, My loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague, and my relatives stand afar off. Luke 23:49. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now think about this. They took him up to Golgotha. They nailed him to a cross. They put the cross in the ground. And who managed to stick around? Out of those 11 disciples that were left because Judas had already abandoned ship. John. What about Peter? No, he disappeared. Andrew? James, Nathaniel, Thomas, they abandoned him. They just took off like sheep without a shepherd is what they did. And, <clears throat> and what about the rest of them? These are much of the same people that the previous Monday, Sunday or Monday before when he rode into town on a donkey in fulfillment of the prophecy, he said, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were singing a psalm. They were saying, This is our Messiah. This is who he is. But they wanted a Messiah to throw the Romans out because they thought they'd already taken care of their sins. The blood of bulls and goats will not take away that problem. He'd be abandoned by his family. People would stare at him. Psalm 22 says, I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. Now, we're not going to go through exactly what happens to an individual that's crucified on a cross. You can find it online. But it has been described as one of the most devilish of deaths that has ever been put together. Uh, what happens with an individual whenever the, they are strung out like this is they basically suffocate before anything else happens because they get where they can't raise up and get a breath so the lungs fill up and everything fills up with fluid and the next thing you know they're gone but it can last at times depending on how strong you are it can last for days now <laughs> Jesus uh, how strong was he this seems like he put together a a whip went into the, the temple and cleaned the money changers out. He was not a human being to be trifled with. He was a strong. They, people picture Jesus as meek and mild. Not He's a warrior. It's who he is, who he's always been. If he gets ready to clean something out, he can clean it out. He is indeed a warrior. So how long could he have lasted in his humanity on the cross? 
apart from divine intervention. Didn't he make the statement, no man takes my life from me? But I lay it down willingly. Whenever his work was done and he proclaimed, it is finished. And he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he died. He laid it down willingly. But people are going to stare at him. Luke 23, 35, and the people stood looking on. His clothing would be gambled away. His clothing would be gambled away. From Psalm 22:18, back in this Psalm 22 again, which says, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sound familiar? John 19. The soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to each soldier a part and also the tunic. And the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece, and they said, Let us not tear it, but let us cast lots for it, whose it shall be. Do you have any idea? Do you think that the <laughs> you think the Roman soldiers whose duty it was to guard the cross, do you think the Roman soldiers had any idea they were fulfilling prophecy when that happened? Prophecy, see, is about the omniscience of God, knowing what is going to happen and knowing the decisions that people are going to make, not controlling them. People often had the wrong view about a prophet. They wanted, like Balaam, they wanted Balaam to prophesy against Israel because they thought if it came out of the mouth of the prophets, ah, then it's going to happen. It's true, but not because the prophets made it happen. Therein is the problem. A prophet was one through whom God spoke, and God is the one that brought things about. It wasn't these guys. never was about these guys. And so every time, I, I love Balaam's story, every time he opened his mouth, he uttered a blessing on Israel instead of a curse that he'd been hired to do. But he liked money so much, he tried it again. <laughs> And then we know the story of the donkey, you know, meeting there, and the donkey rebuked him. What a, what a mess. He would receive uh, vinegar to drink. Now, this is a vinegar. It's a GI beer. It's, it's uh, uh, kind of a, a mixture. Psalm 69, for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. And after this, Jesus said, I thirst. And they gave him gall mixed with wine or whatever it was. It's kind of a difficult thing to figure out exactly what it was. I've heard it called a GI beer. That's probably true. I've heard about some GI beers before. Uh, I had a friend that was, uh, they were making some out in the field while they were on maneuvers one time. And they, it was hot and everything, and they were cooking this stuff out there. And the next thing you know, uh, they decided they were going to drink it. And they were making it in five-gallon cans. And uh, they got ready to drink it, and it had grass and everything else in it. It popped the tops off of it while it's fermenting. And they drank it anyway. <laughs> they paid dearly for that in a whole lot of different ways, especially when Sarge got hold of them. Anyway, he's also going to ask why. Huh. Psalm 22.1 opens this psalm and says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Boy, that's quite a thing, isn't it? 
One of the things Jesus said on the cross, Matthew 27, 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, El is God. Put an I on the end of it in Hebrew, it's my. My God, my God. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, Aramaic. That is, my God, my God. Lama is the question. For what reason? Sabachthani, have you forsaken me? Hmm. Why would Jesus call that out while on a cross? Prophecies being fulfilled. It's interesting about the answer to that question. We know one of the reasons, of course, was to pay for sins. He who knew no sin was made to be sin on our behalf so we could become the righteousness of God in him. We knew that. Why have you forsaken me? But we also know another answer. It was for you and I. When you make it personal. Every one of those eight statements on the cross had a relational inference to it. John, behold your mother. Mary, behold your son. Every one of those things was something about relationship with, with the Almighty and relationship with one another. And he would ask why. Why am I up here? He knew why he was up there. If you read John 17, Father, Father, I, it was for this hour I came. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but your will be done. It was his decision to continue on to the cross. It was his decision, and I think one of the biggest ones, to stay there. Because he is the one that created the universe. He is the one that could say, it's enough of this. This is enough of this. I am going to come down off that cross like you challenged me to do. And you are going to cease to exist. He could have done that. Because he's God. And he has perfect volition. But no, he wouldn't do that. Because once he makes a statement, he keeps it. He's faithful even if we are not. He would commit his spirit to the Father. Psalm 31.5 Into your hand I commit my spirit. In Luke 23.46 When Jesus had cried out with a loud voice he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And not one bone of his body would be broken. Not one bone of his body would be broken. Psalm 34.20 He guards all his bones, not one of them is broken. John 19.33 Now Jews had him up there on the cross. I don't think they knew about this prophecy in Psalm 34. I'm sure they've read it. I don't think they connected the dots on it. But they wanted him off the cross before uh, nightfall before the start of the next day. They wanted him done so he was not hanging on the cross during the Sabbath day. That's what they that's what they wanted. And so they talked to the guards and the guards were sent to break his legs because once legs are broken on a cross you can't raise up anymore to get a breath. They wanted to hasten that on but guess what? When they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead They did not break his legs. So again, another prophecy was fulfilled 
and not by Jesus having control over it or his disciples having control over it. For people have said, well, his disciples did all of this uh, stuff. His disciples made all up all of these things. I just uh, I saw an absolutely crazy thing that a friend of mine who's half crazy sent to me the other day. And it was from the Babylon Bee. I don't know if any of you have heard of the Babylon Bee or not. The Babylon Bee is just about as crazy as you can get. And what they did was they, they <laughs> it's a picture of the disciples after Jesus is dead laying in a tomb. And they said, and it shows the absolute absurdity of the disciples stealing the body. It's really a crazy thing because it said, oh, let's see, one of them, and it was Peter, came up with the idea, hey, let's go steal the body. And we could take him out of there. And once we take him out of there, then they're going to kill, track us all down and kill all of us. And the disciples go, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they says, no, this is a good idea. And of course, of course, uh, John gets involved in it. John says, I don't think this is a good idea. That we're all going to die. And he says, oh, yeah, just think about it. Follow me here, John. Follow me. What we do is we go and we roll the stone away. One of them goes, how are we going to do that? <laughs> it's a big stone. We're going to roll the stone away. And then we're going to take his body out and leave all the garments there laying inside the tomb. Okay, and then they're going to track us down and kill us. Yay! Because <laughs> everything they were going to do if they stole the body, they'd be tracked down and killed for doing that. Now, would you like to be tracked down and killed? And if are, are you going to have exceedingly great joy, which is what they were expressing? Answer this, no. So it's a totally absurd position to think the disciples actually came to steal his his body. Now, we know that his heart would cease to function. Different arguments over this verse. Psalm 22, my heart is like wax. It is melted within me. But John 19, 34, one of the soldiers pierced his side to the spear and immediately came out. Blood and water came out. This meant, meant that he was dead. He'd been dead for a while before his side was pierced. His body would be pierced as a prophecy of Zechariah. Chapter 12 and verse 10. It says, they will look on me whom they have pierced. 1934 from John again. Again, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. They would, it would be a supernatural darkness. Uh, look at this passage. Amos chapter 8 and verse 9. It says, and it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. That kind of gives you chills, doesn't it? Matthew 27, 45, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, there was darkness all over the land. A lot of people try to connect the dots and say it was a, it was a complete eclipse and all that other stuff and and I know all, most all of us in here, when there's an eclipse going to happen and they tell us, hey, you go look out this way, this is what's going to happen, don't look at the sun. You know, that's not the way to do it. 
how long do those things last? Total, a couple minutes. <laughs> Partial, 30 minutes. They don't last long. How are you going to darken the sun for three hours with an eclipse? Unless it's supernatural. And when you look at what he's talking about here, this is not just a twilight type of thing. This is a darkness like you're in a cave. He turned the lights out is exactly what he did. He does that from time to time. Zechariah 14, he's going to do it again. In Zechariah 14, whenever the Lord comes back at the second advent, the lights are all gone. It's described as a day known only to the Lord, a day unlike any other day that's ever been in the history of the earth. The lights are out. But then the Lord comes back and lights it up. He's the light of the world. You know, we don't even need the sun. What's that going to do to your astrophysicist? Because what's going to happen to the earth in the tribulation? When you think about it, what's going to happen to the earth? The earth should not exist with all the things that have happened labeled as natural disasters with a comet falling out of the sky, an earthquake that that destroys all of the the mountains, uh, the sun going nova, trumpet judgments. You look at that and you go, there should no longer be an earth. Why is there still an earth? And why are we? Why are people still on it? There's only one answer. God's keeping them there. There are no other scientific answers. You think maybe when God judges judges the world, maybe it's going to be the so-called science that He judges, because science has become a theology. It has become a religion. It has become one to be believed in, well, no matter if the, the data lines up with it or not. When God judged the gods of Egypt, the ten plagues, in the book of Exodus, he judged the gods of Egypt. All the gods that they had, each one of those plagues, you can connect with one of the gods of Egypt. And he took care of them. Now, when he judges the earth again, do you think maybe he's going to judge the things that people have come to worship? Only makes sense, doesn't it? Makes sense. Those are things to be used and enjoyed, but they are not things to be worshipped. There would be a supernatural darkness, and they'd be bur- he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. Isaiah 53, 9. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich it is death. Matthew 27. There came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, he asked for the body of Jesus. When Jesus had, when uh, Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and he laid it in a new tomb. And how about his resurrection? His body would not decay. That means it couldn't be in the grave very long, or it would have started decaying. Psalm sixteen ten. It says, you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo corruption. It's an interesting place when it comes into the, the, the New Testament. His soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. 
whenever it comes in the New Testament, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And that verse is quoted. It does not use the normal word for holy. The normal word for holy is hagios. It's Greek 101. You learn it quick. It's used a lot, a lot of times. It's the word hasios. Hasios means not just set apart or sanctified or declared holy. Hasios means experientially holy. He is the only one to be experientially holy. It's only used eight times. We are called to be that, but we have not. We don't meet the qualifications of being that forevermore. And he would sit at the Father's right hand. Psalm 110, prophecy of Melchizedek and the Melchizedekian priesthood. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Out of that comes a whole other set of questions. How can David call him Lord and he be David's son? The Jews argued about that. They argued about it. In fact, Christ turned it around on them one time, the week of the cross. And he said, answer me this. How can David call him Lord and he be David's son? There's not but one answer. He's fully God and he's fully man and they were talking to him. And they missed it. They missed it. Hebrews 1.3 When he himself had purged our sins he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. <clears throat> Where's our Lord right now? The right hand of the Father in full glorified, hypostatic union, the God-man seated there, waiting for the time to come get us, his bride, the church. He's gone to prepare a place for us, he said. One day he's going to come and get us and bring us to himself, that where he is, there we may be also. I'm waiting for the trumpet. This would be a good day for it, wouldn't it? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this day and all your love and grace and mercy, all your blessings and all your tests. Father, we pray that, indeed, we would come to appreciate all the more what your plan is, the executor of your plan, your son. And, Father, I pray we would continue to want to know all we can find out about it, the Holy Spirit at work in our life. I pray you would lead us into all truth and show us things to come. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.